residential on the apartment building. Can you upgrade this to a third lawn? This is the working part. We were unable to make that rescue. We're making a rescue now on the Alpha side. Welcome to another edition of Undercover Mental Health. Today's show is called Mental Judo, and it's about empathy and compassion. I have two of my good friends on this show, Dr. Chuck Allen from Colorado and Dr. Jim Keats from Protection Island, British Columbia. Before we get to you guys, I just want to plug my favorite nonprofit, Heads Up Guys. If you are looking for coping mechanisms when it comes to stress, sadness, anxiety, depression, please check out headsupguys.org. And for women, check out women's health forward slash mentalhealth.gov. Two great nonprofits that can help you with coping mechanisms and they're free. Well, it's great to have you both on the show. And uh, Chuck, I'm going to start with you because you said something that resonated with me. The job of a therapist is to get that person to look into a mirror. Is that mirror their past? The, the therapist, as um, Dr. Mate puts it, one needs to be able to make sure they've gone into themselves and be the mirror for the client. I think that's an important piece for the therapist to be able to have, be clear on their own issues and, and be at peace and not be using the client to do their own therapy. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. When I first went, I wasn't ready. I wasn't open-minded enough. I didn't want to look at myself or my past. So going to therapy for me at that point in my career as a person was useless because I sit down there and I was confrontational to the therapist because I didn't want to look into my past. How common is that? It is always a struggle to look at yourself. That's really where everything begins, is being able to take an honest look at yourself. To be able to do that, as Chuck was saying, uh, look in a mirror. And that's what a therapist should provide. Or if the therapist isn't a good mirror, as Chuck said, trying to handle their problems through dealing with everybody else's, you know, the wounded healer kind of idea, it's not going to go well because they're looking for something from you when you're looking for something from them. So being able to approach that mirror is putting yourself in a state of empathy, compassion, unconditional positive regard for another person, but you have to be there yourself. That's what the therapist needs to be there. So that enables you to get there. Well, and I think that's the key. It's right now for, for the therapist, um, they need to be able to get their head around it. They mm-hmm. need to be able to get, uh, help people get their, make, they have to make meaning of it. I guess that's the whole, mm-hmm. that's, that's the way I approach trauma is you, that individual has got to make that make sense. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that's within them, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's an, it's an issue of how do you make sense out of something like that? And, and, uh, we, we, we miss it. I think the mental health field misses it, um, mainly because our, our friend uh, Sigmund Freud was an atheist, and he failed to bring in the spirituality aspect of, of everybody. You know, it's a mind, body, and spirit, mm-hmm. and not just mind and body. Mm-hmm. And the medical field has, has uh, missed that because I, I look at the spirituality as a strength. It's a, it's a tool for each individual to use 
and to put that these traumas, these tragic events into into perspective help the, the people struggling to recover. Right. And to be able to empathize. Right. You can't you can't, you can't be there, go do that. But you can reach that spiritual compassion that's mm-hmm. so important and have empathy in the compassion, I think. That is the only way out is, is to recognize that higher power and spirit that yeah. uh, needs needs attention to. For the therapist to be able to go beyond using techniques and tools, EMDR, these these are tools that work. It, it helps, but it doesn't help the person get to why they need the EMDR. And that's the key for, that's what the difference between a therapeutic technique or, or intervention and a therapist, a technician versus a therapist. When people go to seek a therapist, they need to look for somebody that is going to go into them and deeper into them, uh, into their childhood, into their past to find out what's the mindset of that individual that leads them to their current situation. As Freud put it very, very accurately, I think, where uh, he was a historical determinist. We, we are today, what we are is determined by our past. Carl Jung, of course, went to the, is a futuristic determinist. He said, we're, we are who we are today because we're pulled into the future by our dreams and our ideas and our beliefs. It's probably both. It, it's it's probably we we are both. We have our dreams, and we have our past that that guide our behavior today. People do too much time traveling, and living in the future or living in the past, it creates dysfunction of their current of their of their present. So for someone like myself. I mean, it took me until my 50s that I could actually do EMDR because I was through the therapeutic part. I did accept my faults and accept who I was. And EMDR is actually a good technique for me because mm-hmm. a lot of times I'll go in and say, you know, hey, I'm doing great. Okay, well, do you want, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. And we start doing EMDR. And next thing I know, I'm crying. There's some power in that for me. But to follow up on what Chuck said is if you have someone that hasn't got to the place where they're ready to do counseling. That must be one of the toughest parts of your job. You're a clinical counselor, Chuck, you're a psychologist. You've both treated thousands of people, a lot of first responders and veterans. How do you start with someone like for the listener who's like listening to this go, I've never done psychology or any clinical counseling or EMDR or anything. How do you start with that person when they first sit down? You and I've had conversations about leading a horse to drink, right? If you're leading a horse to drink, you need to be calm. You need to be together. You need to connect with that horse in the way that they feel safe and that they're seeing reflection of calmness, peace, connection, compassion, caring. They're seeing that reflection. If the therapist is set up to receive you that way, you're going to want to drink. You're going to want to look at yourself. You're going to want to try it. Things were scaring you away, but each time you moved a little closer to what you wanted to look at yourself. So just started, just stepping in, just look for that. Any therapist that is, is, is wanting to do the work because they wanna be, they're compassionate. That's why they're there. That's what you're looking for. The Delhi Lama said, you know, if you wanna make other people happy, practice compassion. So as a therapist, that's important to make other people happy. But if you want to make yourself happy, 
you practice compassion. To expand that metaphor, I like it. There's a snake. The horse runs away from the water, but that doesn't solve the thirst. So the horse comes back to the trough and again and again until he finds that it's safe and it, there's, no, there's no snake around. So he'll come and drink. I can't remember the, the author of this quote, but when, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And, and I think that many people do make multiple efforts to get help. They finally connect. They finally are, find a safe therapist, someone that's safe, and um, the, it works. The therapy begins. You've been to Vietnam. You're a Vietnam vet. You've treated people from that war. You've treated people from the Middle East. What's been your greatest challenge with veterans and maybe first responders? Veterans uh, in a war do, do things that are horrendous and, and uh, jaw-dropping. And if you can't handle that as a therapist, you, you will, you'll fail. You'll fail if you can't handle. And suicide issues are, are huge because most therapists are more afraid of suicide, uh, talking about it and dealing with it with a client than the client is because they have these, all these, oh my gosh, I'm going to be responsible. It's all my, you know, litigation going to happen if I, if my patient dies or commits suicide, I'm going to get sued. So they're so afraid of it that they don't worry about finding out why is this person suicidal. They just lock them up and their people know, well, if I, if I mention suicide, they're going to lock me up and I don't want to get locked up. I want to talk about my issues. So it's an issue for the therapist, as, as we said, for the therapist to be clear in their own head as to whether or not they can, they can handle the, the deepest and the darkest secrets these people have to, to offer. One of the things that I think creates the major uh, divorce rates in the fire service, in, the, in law enforcement, and, and in the military is that the veteran thinks he needs to protect his spouse partner from those secrets that are within them and I've talked to many veterans sit with their wife sitting in the room and, and and he said if I tell her what I did or what I went through she'll leave me she will she, she wouldn't be able to stand the sight of me and they believe that and and if you can conquer that and, and help them realize that that may not be true it might be true <laughs> but it's unlikely but I think in, in the fire service for example I think that that they, they believe that they're protecting their spouse from these awful calls and these bad calls. I think most spouses, they may not want to hear about the guts and the glory of the call, but the important thing is what is the firefighter going through? What is their emotional reaction to that? That, that that's what they need to talk about with their spouse. Right. And, and they're, they're protecting their spouse from their pain and of course, then that just makes it bottle up and get out of hand. And they use the alcohol and the, the drugs and the drinking to help run from it. And when you're able to look at what occurred, no matter how bad it was, with compassion, that we're all people in this wonderful universe, uh, makes a big difference. Both of you have met my wife. Um, my wife is a very supportive, very understanding, very good human being and was a nurse and did her practicum on a psych ward and understands mental health. When I went through and, my issues. And handles you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
good point. Um, when I went through my issues, I felt I didn't want to be a pity party. That's what I felt. I felt there was something wrong. And you're right, Chuck. My relationship with that 26er was working for so long until one day it didn't work. Trying to protect my wife and my relationship with alcohol, I went until I completely imploded, which I think is common with first responders. I didn't want anybody to know, like I lived two lives. And I think first responders tend to do that. My greatest challenge was overcoming myself. When you're talking about compassion, the whole point of it is you need to have compassion for yourself first, or you can't have compassion outward. So to share that compassion with Helen, and you had to be having compassion for yourself, which was you weren't approving of yourself that whole time, right? Yeah, that, that compassion for oneself, I think, is the key. I, the, one, the one thing that I do with every client that I have is go in and try to evaluate whether or not they have unconditional positive regard for themselves. And, and they don't understand what that means. What does that mean, unconditional positive regard? And I said, well, take a look at yourself. Think of your value, your uh, self-worth as being unconditional, which means that you are no better and no lesser than anybody else in the world. And the dysfunction of our culture is that we measure our self-worth based on productivity. Uh, what kind of car do you drive? What kind of wealth do you have? All of these things are the yardstick by which people measure their self-worth. And I said, you've got to not do that. To me, the only valid yardstick that is unconditional is the yardstick that your value comes from the fact that you exist. You occupy space in this universe, therefore you're no lesser and no greater than anyone. And that unconditional compassion for yourself because you're unconditional means that you're not gonna judge yourself based upon your, your productivity, how, how well you do, your actions and your behavior. One, one exercise I do with people is I, I, I have them uh, draw a pie, get a piece of paper, draw a circle and cut that into eight pieces of pie. And on one slice, I want you to tell me something that you like about yourself. And now tell me something you don't and something you do and something you don't. And I fill this up and now we've got an equal number of negatives and positives. And I said, now look at that piece of pie and tell me, are you a good person or a bad person? What kind of a human being are you? Look at this pie and you've got positive and negatives in there. So are you good or bad? I'm trying to get them to the conclusion that they're neither. They simply are, and they can do good things and bad things. That does not measure who you are as a person. And you can always change that as well. You always have the choice. Changing the behaviors. If yes. you don't like the fact that you drink, you can fix that. But that drinking doesn't make you a bad person. So that unconditional positive regard means that you're, you are what you are, and you're not good or bad. If you're, if you're an alcoholic, you simply are an alcoholic. Now fix it. But if you take out the self-worth part of it, then, then you know, if, if it's intertwined and, and combined in there, you can't untwist it. You can't get it apart. Empathy is looking at a situation and thinking, this is a sad situation. There are a thousand homeless people here. You know what? I, I feel for these people. And compassion is, I want to make a difference. Am I wrong? I want to get involved. Empathy is the gateway. 
Compassion is the path, okay? So to be able to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and see it from their perspective, but not from their perspective, well, that they have pain and they're suffering, but also the perspective that they are a child of the universe just like you are, just like what Chuck was talking about. So leveling it up that we're on the same spot, bringing that unconditional positive regard to it. The, the other term that I think used to come around a lot with empathy is sympathy. And I think there's a difference between the two. Empathy is, as Jim put it, the ability to look at the world through that person's eyes and have compassion and, and understanding for their pain and their suffering. The most important thing I think for a therapist to make sure that they are clear on is that they don't get into a sympathy issue where they, they start to mix up their issues with the client's issues. When I was first on, I was on a suicide hotline. I was working a suicide hotline. We had group supervision. And during the supervision, after a pretty rough call that I had had, um, the, one, of my, one of my peers simply said to me, she said, look at your shoes. And I looked down and go, what? What are you talking about? She said, are those Jesus boots? And I said, what are you talking about? She says, look, unless you can save these people, you're going to be burned out in this profession if you, don't be, if you cannot separate your issues from theirs. For you to overextend yourself and to try to rescue them, to try to save them from their issue. I've never forgotten that. That that happened in 1972, by the way. I have never let that slip. And I've always kept my stuff in the office. And I never take it home. I don't need to take my stuff home. Their stuff is their stuff. And I don't take responsibility for their right to, to suffer. I can understand it. I can re relate to it. But I don't try to rescue anybody. And that's how I try to be a mirror for them to keep my mirror clean. So I keep my stuff out of it. So compassion is the ability to, to uh, be that mirror, to be that person who can understand and, and, and reach out and, and provide service and, and help them go deeper into why they're doing what they're doing, to help them understand that and then fix it. And I respect their right to fix it themselves. You know, the thing I was talking to somebody the other day about is that in the mental health field, we think we have the right to become paternalistic. And, and for me, the, all, the ultimate um, ethical principle of my, of my practice um, is to respect autonomy. That's the prima facie ethical principles, to respect that person's right to run their life their way the way they see fit. My job is to guide them and to help them understand maybe there's a better way to go about that rather than try to, to impose and become paternalistic and take away their autonomy. And so that led in the discussion to the issue of suicide. And if I respect a person's right to, to their autonomy, then, then one of the things that I, uh, I could not do is violate that autonomy unless they're incompetent. If a person says I can stand on a 10-story building because I can fly and I'm going to jump off, 
I'm going to judge that person to be incompetent and therefore I'm going to violate their autonomy. I'm going to, I'm going to lock them up. But if a person sits and tells me that the, you know, very logically and rationally and say, you know, I've got cancer and it's not curable, it's not treatable. And it's extremely, I'm in extreme misery and pain. My quality of life is zero. And I think it's reasonable to commit suicide. What do I do? Do I rob them of their autonomy or do I respect their autonomy? How do I, how do I legally untwine myself from that kind of a situation? You know, what, what are the laws of our culture? And, and, and I think they, they sometimes get in the way. And what is the most empathetic and compassionate way to deal with it too is- Exactly. Know. Steve, where you were asking about empathy and compassion, a real quick thing was way back in your book where you talked about seeing that firefighter on the back of the truck. His look at you and you're looking, there was empathy there. He saw you as a kid or, you know, that might want something better. His smile back and his wave was compassion. He recognized you on a deep level and a small act like that, of feeling that compassion, Right. Change life. Okay. Right. It, it, Beautiful. That's the best definition I can think. So there's no small act of kindness done from compassion that is missed. That's what the highest form of um, intelligence, I think, and learning is to be compassionate and be empathetic. At this point in my career, I'll manage a jumper call that three hours into the jumper call, he'll jump land right in front of me. I'll pass the tarp off. I am driving home, respecting his right to take his own life. Whatever pain he was in, uh, he dealt with it. And I'm, I'm hoping I can, I'd say to myself, he's no longer in pain. And, or if I go to a call where I'll give you an example, not so long ago, my wife phoned me, Hey, you didn't text me this morning. Where are you? I said, Oh, I'm out of call. I got called out at three in the morning. And, she goes, oh, anybody hurt? And I said, there's a tarp with a body underneath it right behind me. Doesn't bother me. What happened to me since I started my career? You went from sympathy to empathy. You can now look at the world and see it through their eyes and, and have a way to get your head around it. You just described it beautifully. You, you know, the person is out of, their, out of their misery now. They chose to kill themselves and they chose to end their suffering. And you respect that right. That's compassion and empathy for that person. Whereas sympathy, on the other hand, where you think, oh my gosh, I've got to prevent this. I've got to stop people from killing themselves. I've got to, you know, oh my gosh, this, you, you go to a bad call uh, and, and you look at their, uh, their pictures on the wall and you're saying, you know, and, and, I, and I think probably the younger fire, you when you were younger and, and the younger firefighters who are not trained for this, this kind of uh, trauma is that deep in your heart, if you could ask yourself, thank God it's them and not me. If you can get a hold of that truth, uh, that, that, I, I, that's a personal experience. This goes back into my, my mirror. When I was first at the VA, I was very uncomfortable, just didn't want to be in the elevator with someone my age with no arms or no legs in a wheelchair. Vietnam vets who had lost, lost limbs. That was just uncomfortable for me to be around these people. I went to my boss, my mentor. I don't, I don't get it. What is going on? 
And he asked me that question. He said, if, you, if you're honest with yourself, ask yourself if whether or not the truth is it's deep in your heart, it's better them than you. You would not want to trade places with that person in that wheelchair. The light went on. You know, he, he, he spoke my truth and, and I made peace with it. Resolved the issue. I was now not uncomfortable being around somebody because I was honest with myself. And that was my compassion. It better you than me. And I can have compassion for you now. I don't have to avoid you because I can't handle my own truth. The deeper truth even behind that is gratitude for what you are and what you have. Bingo. And appreciating. That's your difference right now, Steve. You're appreciating the job you do. You're grateful that you're there. You're grateful that you're the guy that helps get that body moved out for the families. That's the difference, wouldn't you say, Chuck? Yeah, the gratitude, I think, is a big part of that. And yeah, you're grateful that it's, that it's not you. And, and uh, that, that, as you were saying that, though, it, it led me to the, to the next level, maybe behind that. And that is the purpose. And why are we here? Why do some people have to lose both arms and both legs in combat? And other people don't get wounded at all. Why do they, what is their experience? Um, what comes to mind is, is a Marine in Afghanistan in 2010 who jumps on a grenade and the grenade goes off right in the center of his sternum. Okay. Shattered half his face, 13 bones in one arm gone, opened him up, but he survived. How do you make sense out of his ability to live and other people die from a single bullet wound in the shoulder. Well, that goes back to the whole issue of our purpose. Why are we here? That's where the spirituality part comes in. And those things happening, there's a choice how to deal with them around that. And Steve, you and I have talked That's about right. that with Victor Frankl, where you can let it overwhelm you. That's right. You can become worse than the incident or whatever the trauma is. Or you can go to that higher human value, which is compassion, I think, the highest human values. Accepting, so you have a choice to choose those three anytime. Accepting reality as it is. Yeah. It is yeah. what it is. So for a young first responder, how do we learn to be this person that understands there's honor? How do we learn this person that self-positive talk is super powerful? How do we learn that? What you're talking about there is, again, the self-compassion approval of yourself that i'm here at this even though it was a shitty thing i'm here for a higher purpose knowing what you are why you are rather than being riddled with self-doubt and recriminations and i screwed up screwed up here and the fire service is great for us thinking that that we screw up here we screw up here but understanding that compassion for yourself well you won't react to those same the same way with a lot of stress and with a lot of beating yourself up, having to drink, having to handle that pain of not being accepted and not getting that empathy or connection that you really need. Because that empathy really is that ladder out of the shame hole. When I started at the VA, I started as the coordinator of the chronic pain clinic. And I learned 
I, I did a lot of biofeedback and we did group therapy with combat vets who had been wounded, wounded in combat, chronic pain. The thing that I learned probably very quickly was to accept my humiliation that I can't fix these, that I was unable to cure a pain patient of their pain, relieve them. I became humbled. Humility was the, was the antidote to my arrogance. And I, I learned that, you know what, I'm going to do the best that I can do to make the quality of their life. I'm not going to fix their pain, but I'm going to change the quality of their life. You can have back pain and sit home and suffer, or you can go to the movie and have back pain and sit there and suffer. So either way, what do you want to do with your life? So that was the kind of goal of teaching them to improve the quality of their life. Well, as a first responder, I think the, the honor of doing that is that you're there to do your best to provide that patient with the opportunity to survive. The, the Marine who jumped on the grenade would not have survived had he not had a, a medevac within, within minutes of his experience. And he took advantage of the expertise that those paramedics or those medics provided him. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was an interaction between the two. The paramedic is doing their best and providing every bit of, of, uh, of their medical skills for this person to survive. But the pain and the suffering of that person may be more, more profound than they want to go through. And they choose not to take advantage of the expertise that you provide. Don't think that you're saving the person or you failed to save the person. The issue is you provided everything you could do. You had the compassion, you had the empathy for their situation and you gave it your best, but you respect their right to check out. You know, we do that all the time with, with we, we think about that with, with the chronic cancer patients. For, for, for fifth, fourth stage cancer patients. We respect their right to die. And if a paramedic can change the paradigm to they say, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to provide this patient with every bit of my expertise, but I'm going to respect their right to their autonomy, respect their right to stay or go. Okay, Chuck, that sounds great when you say it. But the first, <laughs> I'm digesting. Here. Yeah, yeah. But the it sounds. I don't want to say easy, but it sounds great. But the let's just say the first responder that has not looked at himself in the mirror yet, the first responder who has all this self doubt and all this baggage from the past, how much of an effect does that have on him to be able to do what you just said and deal with a traumatic event? Those past things, if they're not dealt with, each every other occurrence, they're sort of re-triggering and it keeps the body in a state of fight or flight stress all the time. And Gabor Mate has a great book when the body says no. And just how that low grade stress, constant, constant, and always looking at everything, never getting that break to your system that you give when you have practice self-compassion. And it gets harder and harder to practice self-compassion the more it goes on. So being able to get to it when you can't and face it, I, I think that's a, a real task that 
every firefighter really needs to be able to separate and look at their job without those stacking up of that backpack full of stress. You don't want a first responder coming in with a pile of shit. You want that unconditional positive regard. And that's the way they get to it, is acceptance of themselves and a gratitude for what they're doing. One of the ways to get there, to even get started, for someone listening that's listening to us right now and going, I got all this shit from my past. I don't even know what these guys are talking about. And I know both of you, me, we've had lots of discussion on this, but one of the ways to start dealing and looking at yourself or maybe even getting the courage to look back there is to get in the now right now, <laughs> is to have a moment where you have peace in your life instead of always remunerating back to dragging all this bullshit from the past, getting into the now and just getting a break so that you can get a bit of clarity to start to look back. Is that fair? Absolutely. You just touched on a, a book that I recommend also to everybody is The Four Agreements. Uh, just check it out. Google Four Agreements and look in there. You can get the four online in, in the cover. But speaking with precision and speaking your truth is one of the major issues. And to not take stuff personally. When somebody criticizes you or somebody talks to you, or that's their crap, not yours. Their opinion of you is based on their stuff not on who you are as a person. And that's, I think, what you were really touching on there is to, is to separate out who you are and to get your stuff in, in perspective and to, to have that unconditional positive regard for yourself. In other words, what you've done in the past does not make who you are as a human being. It's just stuff you did in the past. So many people are stuck there and it's inhibiting their ability to do oh, their job. 99% of our culture is that way. Absolutely. Why 99%? Why are we like that? Because we're dysfunctional. <laughs> we're, we're, we're hardwired to fear <laughs> and worry and concern. We're hardwired to react to it. And there's so much going on, you know, so many things to react to. I, I think organized religion has a lot to do with it. Yes. Um, I think organized religion teaches people that if you, if you want to go to heaven, you got to be good. In other words, they base your salvation on your good works, or if you sin, you're going to hell. And so they talk about your behavior as to what your relationship is with God. And it's based upon that. And so, so it's, it's built into the system and the mindset of the religions around the world. If you have over 60,000 thoughts a day and 95% of them are negative, how do you start converting them to be positive? Just like if you want to learn to play golf, you got to go practice and you got to do mental judo, as Burns puts it. You got to do mental judo on those dysfunctional ideas and thoughts. And that's all they are. They're thoughts. You don't have to believe them. The first thing with it is really connecting to yourself in the moment to start right. and always the breath always triggers that and gets the switch started taking that one moment outside of the stress in the current moment without past or future is really the starting point and really that that's what you needs to be practiced and it can be practiced practiced and it changes from 66,000 thoughts to a lot of those thoughts become just in the now and not fear thoughts, not worry thoughts, just 
being and existing and feeling compassion for the whole world, everything around you, you're connected. I, I've, been, I've been practicing the now for years mm -hmm. and it's sort of like become secondhand. Like I don't time travel. And if I catch myself time traveling, I really do some discipline on it, some mental judo to, to get back into the now. And it's just an exercise program. Now it's become automated for me. I still have negative thoughts. I know who I am. I still remunerate to financial losses and even embarrassing conversations. It's amazing how an embarrassing conversation you had 10 years ago can pop back into your head and make you feel weird. The key to that is that you don't, go to that. You can remember that negative experience and that really bad time, but you don't connect it to who you are as a person. It's just something that happened in the past. And that's what it was. It's not who you are now. It doesn't define you. Okay. That's the key is to break that, that link between you, you, you didn't do your best on that fire call. You could have done better. Well, that doesn't make you a piece of crap. It just makes you learn from your mistakes. All the growth is in that adversity and, and those challenges. That's right. That's right. And when that adversity, you can learn to breathe through it, be in the moment in it. It changes the way it handles in your body, your mind, everything around you. And it doesn't become a burden. It strengthens you and allows you to give more compassion whenever you need it. Well, and, and, and the, the thing that, that, that goes from there from the compassion piece to when you remember that is for us to value our emotions. Emotions are the, the tones that go off. And when that tone goes off, the stronger it is, I don't care whether it's a positive or a negative emotion, the stronger the emotion, the bigger the issue is that you've got to go inside and fix. It's nothing but an alarm. It's like a smoke detector. This is a big one. You don't have a lot of compassion about the last stop sign you saw driving to work. You don't have a lot of emotion and you know, feelings about that stop sign, okay? But when you see a child laying there that's just been hit by a car, you have a strong emotion. Well, that tells you there's something inside. You need to go find it and make peace with it and make it make sense to you. Why did that child's death create such a strong feeling in you? That's just a signal to you to go find it and look for it. And that's where the therapist comes in. They're a mirror to help you go find that issue within you. Why did you get so emotional and stirred up about that child call? Uh, when you're a first responder, there's a lack of training on how you're going to feel. Never Bingo. mind when you're a first responder. Bingo. We should be teaching kids in elementary school and high school. Hey, this exactly. is what anxiety looks like. This is what depression looks like. This is what fight or flight looks like. These are things that are going to happen to you. And here's what you should do. But we don't teach that. That's right. We teach people, oh, you have anxiety, take this pill. We don't want you to have these feelings. We don't want you to experience this. We're going to numb them out. We're going to drug them. And people can't afford to go see their doc, so they drink. And they use these drugs to, to anesthetize themselves from the, the, the alarm. It's like you've got a smoke detector in your house and it goes off. So you just go knock it off the wall, break it. You don't want to hear that damn thing. You don't go look for why it went off. <laughs> there's a reason why it went off. And there's a reason why these emotions are so, and, and, and I don't have a lot of people that come and say, doc, I'm way too happy. Can you help me figure out why I'm so happy? 
I, they come because they're having so many negative emotions and they're dysfunctional in terms of how to cope with them. We need to teach our kids that emotions are extremely valuable and they're extremely important. Don't get rid of them. Don't run from them. Don't, don't try to beat them up. Don't numb them out. Empathy is on the other end of the spectrum from anger and fear and compassion. So in order to cancel out that anger, fear, and so on, to engage in empathy and compassion brings us into balance. It makes us feel like we fit, that we belong, we're part of something, and we're not stacking all this negative stuff. These stupid messages from way in the past that are just habitual, in the moment they don't exist. The universe isn't putting them there, only your memory. Right. Firefighters are people that are reacting to stresses. Move to that, to your spot in that zone, in that calmness, and then you can really appreciate whatever sport it is, mountain climbing, skydiving, anything, as well as firefighting. The way to start to find compassion or understand it is to get into the now, find yourself, get into the mountains, take your shoes off, stand there. Just, is that what we're talking about? Be. How do Stop wanting and start being. Being. Okay. It's the Buddhist way, but it's, it's also makes a lot of sense. All suffering comes from wanting. And that's what's going on. I want to be better. I want to be this. I want to be this. I, I didn't want this to happen. I wanted this to happen. And it didn't happen. But just being and taking what's there and stop the wanting, that's where you encounter true compassion of, of the world around you. And you can, and that becomes contagious. When you're feeling compassion, other people do it, feel it too. Just like when people are anxious and nervous, other people feel it too. Again, I'll go back to education of, hey, you're going to feel shitty. Hey, you suffer from depression. Here's what might happen if you don't deal with your past and you go to all these traumatic calls. You might struggle more than that guy over there because you've got some issues. And because you haven't dealt with them, like when you get hired in the fire service right at the beginning, just so you know, if you guys haven't dealt with your shit, here's what happens. It's going to stir it up. And Part of that mental judo is knowing the right stance knowing the, how to move, how to, how to think, how to yeah. handle stress, how to handle emotion, how to tune in. And uh, yeah, it, it all, is all learnable. Steve, you're a great example of as you explore, as you begin looking, you find more. But that ultimate, what's always underneath it is what the motivation is and seeing your purpose. And I've seen that as you've connected into it and we don't even know what the hell it is now. But it is flowing and things are happening and you're a good example in terms of spreading empathy and compassion. And Chuck, always good to talk to you. <laughs> always learning. <laughs> Thank you both for uh, being on the show. I really appreciate everything you guys do. There are people out there like you both who are willing to share and I think it's very helpful for someone who might be struggling to listen to this. So thank you both very much. My pleasure, and I'm so grateful that, uh, that you've included me. Myself as well. Good to see you, Chuck. Good to see you, Jim. Thank you so much for listening and helping us crush the stigma when it comes to mental health. Take care.